Physician's Guide to Doctoring is now part of the Doctor Podcast Network, which you should all check out on doctorpodcastnetwork.com. On today's episode, we have Vanessa Guzman, who's the CEO of SmartRise Health, which specializes in all value-based payment and accountable care organization matters. She helps us to make sense of the alphabet soup of acronyms like ACO, MIPS, and why the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is CMS and not CMMS. She defines value by CMS's three aims, better care for individuals, better health for populations, and lower cost. She attempts to shorten the chasm between what we see as useless clicking and how it actually helps our patients. We discuss how this can help our bottom line and help our patients to thrive, and how we can use the data we collect for CMS and commercial payers to help our own organizations. We also discuss the impact of COVID and where she sees these payment models going in the future. With almost 15 years of experience, Vanessa has helped organizations gain over millions of dollars in value-based payment-related revenue through her unique integrated strategy that creates a collaborative space among health systems, payers, technology solutions, and community-based organizations. Vanessa graduated from Columbia University's Foo Foundation School of Engineering and Applied Science with a BS and MS in Biomedical Engineering, specializing in diagnostic imaging. She is also certified in Quality Engineering and Quality Management and Organizational Excellence by the American Society for Quality. For her outstanding contributions, Vanessa has been awarded the 2018 Becker's Hospital Review Rising Stars Under 40 and 2017 Modern Healthcare's Up and Comers Awards. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Vanessa Guzman, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Brad, thank you so much for having me today. <laughs> so what is SmartRise and why did you create it? SmartRise is an organization. It has two arms. One is that helps providers, healthcare stakeholders align themselves with what we call value, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And the second arm of the organization is coaching. So it helps organizations as well as individuals meet goals in relation to what is valuable to them. In the healthcare field, it means alignment with payment models, quality measures, population health. On the more personal individualized side, it means identifying values within ourselves that are meaningful and important so that we can find fulfillment. So I created with the notion of that there's somewhere in the middle a, a reason why we're all involved in healthcare, why we are putting all these efforts in so that we can maximize the best use of our time, but also have the greatest contribution in healthcare. So I'm so happy to be here with you today. And again, thank you for doing it. And thanks for doing what you do because bridging the gap to what others feel value is versus what we feel value is versus what the patients feel value is. It seems like sometimes that's a huge chasm and, and we're going to, we're going to get into that. So before we even get started on what, how we define value, just give us a little primer on what some of the more common acronyms are, because I hear these <laughs> bandied around a, 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 around a lot and, and, you know, ACO, Accountable Care Organization, fine. I got that one. But, you know, the rest of them, CMMI, 
MIPS, <laughs> CQA, all these acronyms I hear. And, you know, a lot of times people that are familiar with them just use the acronym and then I'm just lost, right? Absolutely. So, so and I think giving us an intro to those acronyms is also going to give us an intro to just some of the concepts that we're going to be talking about, some of the organizations that we're going to need to be familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. So an important one is the term triple aim, which really comes from the IHI model, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, they were the stewards um, uh, and, and sponsors of this notion that by achieving uh, healthcare efficiencies, we need to improve patient experience, uh, improve health and outcomes, and reduce total cost of care. So that's a really important one because a lot of what we'll be talking about and where value really comes from is by establishing healthcare efficiency so that we have greater outcomes in how we deliver care for our patients. ACO, you mentioned it best. Uh, those are accountable care organizations. Uh, they are groups of providers, essentially, that work together, whether they're health systems, hospitals, PCP specialists, home care organizations, community-based organizations, but essentially they come together with the mission of helping achieve that triple aim that I mentioned earlier. Then you have CMS, which is the Centers of Medicaid, Medicare, right? And with that organization, CMMI, right? So th that's the Centers for Medicare, Medicare Services, specific to innovation. That's what the I stands for. So they're a subsidy to CMS and they provide those innovation models that we'll go to uh, into later on. Sorry, um, interrupt just a second. CMS, shouldn't it be CMMS? If it's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, shouldn't there be two M's? It's they really are, you know, they just take it in like an M&M &M and it's only one M. Uh, and usually when we talk about the centers of uh, Medicaid and Medicare, uh, it's, it's whenever you hear CMS, the, it's generally a Medicare program uh, or driven program. So whenever you see it in addition to a program or in combination to a program, it's generally, it's generally led by the Medicare side of the organization. Because Medicare sets the trend for all the rest of the commercial payers Whereas Medicaid does not. Correct. They don't they don't follow Medicaid's lead, they follow Medicare's lead. Correct, correct. Medicaid is much more governed at a state level, whereas of Medicare is one we usually refer to as the feds. It's much more national benchmarks, national standards. Okay. What about MIPS? MIPS is the merit-based incentive payment system. It was developed, often many of us know it as part of the ACA, right, or the Obamacare that was released in March of 2015. So it, that, that act evolved into what we hear now as MIPS, which is essentially a form of payment model that was established by Medicare to help incentivize providers more on value versus fee-for-service. Um, and that has been the trajectory that we've now followed for years. And Medicare is just stepping up the game so that we make all of ourselves accountable for better quality of care and delivery. Okay. And before we started recording, you had mentioned NCQA. What is yes. NCQA? So NCQA is a National Committee of Quality Assurance, and they are the stewards and essentially the pioneers of everything when it comes to quality measures, which is often used to evaluate providers or health systems or ACOs performance in terms of their journey into value. So quality measures are used as indicators, essentially, of measuring how close we all are to the triple aim. Okay. seems like the triple aim is really the 
the the middle of the Venn diagram there? It's definitely the middle. It's the lighthouse is basically the goals and objectives that we want to achieve ultimately in healthcare. Uh, any other acronyms that we should be familiar with? Uh, I would throw in patient-centered medical home, PCMH, often used also to describe primarily primary care models that bring in almost like uh, all, all sorts of resources so that uh, a patient feels like they can go to one setting and it's like a, you know, one-stop shop type okay. of deal. So what are some different value-based payment models that we as physicians can capitalize? And keep in mind, um, the physicians that listen to this podcast aren't all, I'm in private practice, mm-hmm. right? But there are going to be some private practitioners, some that work for multi-specialty groups, some that work for hospital systems, and so well, some are academics. So, you know, but we're all, these are all things that we should all be clearly be more familiar with. So just if you could give us a little primer on what the different value-based program, payment, value-based payment models are. Sure. And, and even with that, you hear a number of acronyms, value-based payment models, value-based care. It's all alluding to the same. Again, having contracting agents come together, generally a payer and a provider type. So let's start with what that, uh, you know, VBP even is, right? So it's an arrangement between a payer and a provider. That provider could be an ACO or it could be, like you said, private practice or whatnot, right? But a provider of some sort. Types of value-based payment models are assessed generally by what we call levels of risk. So levels of risk is how uh, payments flow down to to its providers or its participants. We have two types of funding flow, one of which is upside or downside or a little bit of both. So what does that mean? You're probably going to ask. Well, upside is when when you can only make money, right, or uh, attain additional dollars by achieving higher levels of quality performance, right, which I mentioned earlier, uh, many of which are through NCQA measures generally. But there's downside risk, too, for some of these models. The higher the risk, the higher the downside risk, right? which means you can make more, but you can also lose more if uh, the provider network or its participants are unable to meet specific benchmarks that were set as part of that that value-based arrangement. So as we go higher in levels, higher is in risk, that requires additional activities to be able to achieve those value-based goals that were established by those entities. So how do they how do they work and, and give us some examples like what are, what are they looking for from sure. us physicians? Yeah. So for example, we are looking at quality measures perhaps that are in different domains. A common domain um, or type of measure that's that's assessed is on patient satisfaction, patient experience, or caregiver experience. Right. So we're referring to those measures as uh, patient surveys that are released to random a randomized uh, set of patients, and they speak on uh, or comment on their overall provider perception of care, overall provider rating, shared decision-making is very important, how they perceive that they receive health education promotion, for instance. So they uh, the measures vary, but uh, the patient experience domain is, is obviously an, a key important objective of the triple aim. The second type of measures are preventive care in nature. So an early point as part of our, our discussion, we talked about preventive care like BMI screening or cancer screenings, depression screening. So we're talking about, again, 
trying to keep the healthier population um, healthy or being able to identify when there is rising risk. So the preventive measures are, are seeking to keep uh, tabs as much as we can on, on just having a healthier population overall and preventing chronic conditions. And then the third type of measures are chronic condition management. So it's our ability as a as a health system, as a healthcare stakeholders in general, and our ability to manage things like diabetes um, or hypertension or other CV conditions, ESRD, heart failure. So, so in general, oh, that acronym. Are- I know, I know what an ESRD is. That acronym, I know. Okay. Yes, you should know. <laughs> so that's an important piece to, and and all these conditions that I just mentioned tend to be the costliest of all, right? Across the country, we're we're the United States is still number one in terms of uh, cost goals. So much of the of the initiatives and activities behind uh, managing good quality of care is also around reducing cost of care. So all these types of quality measures that I mentioned all tied back to also our ability to be very efficient in the way that we deliver the care so that we maintain costs down as much as we can. It sounds like most of this revolves around primary care, right? Most of what you're discussing is primary care, except maybe end-stage renal disease, and then then you get into the the nephrologist as well. Mm -hmm. But certainly there's plenty of overlap. Is are there metrics that are being used in, or looked at in other specialties? Like, for instance, I'm an otolaryngologist. So, mm-hmm. you know, some of the chronic conditions we might see would be like sleep apnea or chronic sinusitis. Mm-hmm. Sleep apnea can, can really affect your, your, your longevity, whereas chronic sinusitis is generally right. more of a quality of life uh, illness, uh, unless yeah. there are other, other factors involved. So with things like that, is that something that we have to, that either we're doing now or can look forward to in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So although many of the quality programs that I mentioned, and even when they first started, was specifically addressing or targeting primary care providers as that responsible party, right, that manages the overarching goals and care plan of a patient, it is part of our next phase or goals into the future to be much more intentional in terms of engaging specialists too. Specialists play specifically a really important role in two two areas. One, in helping us reduce total cost of care. A lot of the cost related to care is from referrals, referrals to specific networks and pockets of specialists. So the accountable care model essentially is trying to promote that you and I work together with the same mission, the same goals, and then what happens when the patient has the option of going outside of our you and I network, right, there might incur additional unnecessary preventable costs because that provider may not have the same mission that you and I have in mind, right? So it's part of an ACO spirit to keep patients within our network so that they not only receive consistent care, but the best care according to our standards and infrastructure. So that's an important piece that does impact and include specialists. The second piece is they are what they call cross-cutting measures. So, wait, wait a second. It sounds like I could interpret that as cutting the specialists out of the loop is going to control costs. So the fewer specialist referrals you have, maybe the the higher your reimbursement. Is is that what you're saying? No, it's not okay. what I'm saying. Thank goodness. Uh, on the contrary, on the contrary, I want to engage specialists with whom I can share this mission with, right? So we can talk about 
what is the best way of referring patients to that really, really special specialist friend that I have, right? So maybe there could be primary care services that can assess lower risk patients before I escalate it to a specialist. So I've, I've worked on many, many clinical pathway projects that allows me to send less headaches to my cardiologist or my nephrologist, right? Or neurologist. That sounds like fewer referrals. Not fewer, fewer referrals, referrals but the right, the right referrals the right referrals, right? Because we want to make the best use of the specialist time as well so that they're receiving the right patients where they have the highest impact. We see it all the time with diabetic patients, especially um, where endocrinologists get all the diabetes patients, right? And many of them are looking to really focus their attention on those that perhaps are in need of better management. Interesting, interesting. I just, my my mind sometimes goes to um, my sinusitis patients who actually have migraines, yeah. but they get sinus pressure over and over again. And when they go to the doctor, they get antibiotics because this is what we were taught in medical school. Right. right? Sinus pressure, sometimes nasal congestion is, is a sinus infection, but more often than not, it's actually a migraine, but they end up getting treated with that. But the sooner they see me, the, sore, the sooner we can untangle that knot and the sooner they can get on the path. Absolutely. So I'm Anything. arguing for more referrals, not less, but I'm not arguing with you because you are the one communicating the policy, not <laughs> creating the policy. So, Well, actually, I'm, I'm team Brad because if you think about it, if you see the right patients, the right patients will have better access to you if your schedule is not completely consumed by any patient. So we're talking about efficiency here. Right now, my schedule is not completely consumed. It's going Just, to be our I, secret among the okay. hundreds of people who are listening. <laughs> listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about, we, you already defined value, right? You defined value by the triple aim, right? Okay. That's, that's, their, that's their, your, our definition of yeah. value. Do you find that the value that is determined by CMS differs from the definition of value that patients have and the value that physicians have? Because it Absolutely. seems like we all would agree with the, the, the triple aim, but ultimately when these orders come down from CMS on what we need to record and what we need to do, you know, we don't, that doesn't always translate into how we perceive it as value and how the patients perceive it as value. Absolutely. And I feel like that's where providers start feeling like their jobs have become checking boxes in an EHR. So if it's not translated in a way that's meaningful to to the patient and the provider, you will obviously see an uptake on discouragement and our inability to really focus on what's important to us. So absolutely value is different by all of us because we're people. So if we look at ourselves as a whole person and why we're doing this type of work, our interests and motives might be totally different from one another, right? That stands, that holds true for patients as well and their ability to engage and prioritize health, right? We would argue they have a responsibility too in managing their health, but with a patient, obviously there's influencers such anything from like health literacy to social motives, right? in terms of why they may or may not prioritize their health and understand your directive. So th that's the, the patient's piece of it. From a provider's and care team perspective in general, it's about finding the physician's voice. And th that applies to any job. Obviously, physicians have 
care and health and patients' lives in their hands, but it's about finding the voice. So finding the voice in terms of what exactly matters to you. So I actually want to practice this with you. So I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. All right. Let's spin the, the, the views a little bit. So what matters most to you right now? Just tell me a few priorities that you have right now, and then we'll tie it back to BBP. So with regards to my job, I want to be able to pay my bills. I want to be able to keep the office open and be able to pay my staff and pay them you know, well and treat them well. Uh, I want there to be plenty of time. Uh, people hear this on my episodes all the time. I have three boys under five, so I want to be able to be at home with them as well, you know. And then with regards to my my interactions with my patients, I want to feel fulfilled. And I want to feel fulfilled because they want to be there and they're doing well. Yeah. So so ultimately I want, you know, the the that's 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 what's important to me. I don't want to be there all the time clicking boxes. I don't want to be there um, doing work that doesn't seem to have value because it doesn't translate to my, either my compensation or my patient's improvement. And, you know, I want to make sure I'm just not there all the time. And, you know, when I'm there, I'm fulfilled. Yeah. So then that makes sense. So let's translate that and connect the dots in terms of how that aligns to value-based payment models. And, and let's see if we find your voice in the midst of the triple aim. So you talked about getting compensated, being able to compensate your staff, balance, right? So that translates to efficiency, right? Efficiencies where you can put automated protocols, identify opportunities to do things differently workflow-wise, right? So we're talking patient-centered medical home. That's what that does, right? There are protocols specifically designed to do that. Then you're talking about perhaps working on the EHR in a way that's much more meaningful so that you're not like seeing patients all day. And I, a lot of my physician friends are still working through 11 o'clock at night, documenting their notes, right? So it's automating things in a way there. You're putting the EHR to work, not the opposite. The third piece is on compensation, right? So compensation, these all these value payment models are designed to flow some form of fund your way. From my perspective, use the check boxes to get the compensation in and then do what you love, which for you means really delivering care that matters to the patients, that you're able to see the patients for a very long time, keep them healthy, right? And see the right ones at the right time because that's what's going to bring you the efficiencies that will allow you to go home on time to be with your families and kids, right? So it's about really taking what's most meaningful to you and then translating in a way where you're not checking off the boxes for, for maybe one motive, which is primarily revenue for, for, for many, right? But it's all these downstream actions and functions that flow beyond just providing the value. And that's, that's how we meet halfway. But it's about you stepping into a place where you feel that you can influence quality, where you can influence population. So if I were to ask you right now, what is something you're really, really good at what would that be? That's a tough question. <laughs> uh, how about something I'm, meter, I'm a mediocre surfer? Okay. And how does, that, how does that balance, that core work, how does that adventure, how can you translate that into the work that you do? Surfing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so 
Uh, my office is on Long Island, and contrary to popular belief, there is actually surfing on Long Island. And so sometimes, you know, it, uh, it allows me to relate to patients in, uh, on, in ways that they might not expect me to. Because, right, you don't okay. walk into your ear, nose, and throat doctor's office and expect them to, to talk to you about uh, the swell or, you know, the beach that you surf at or right. the type of board that you use or whatever. And that also helps me sometimes extract information that I might not otherwise get from them that allows me to help them in other ways that they might not even have brought up. Right. So then you're talking patient engagement. Yeah. You're able to connect through empathy you're able to connect through stories and you're able to extract what's most important from them because you're, that's what you're sharing from yourself. And we all marry each other, right? So we took what's most, most important to you, probably one of your less than mediocre, right? Surfing skills. And we also took your main objectives in being in healthcare, in being a provider to align with the triple aim. And that's what I ask from physicians. When I coach one-on-one, this, these are the conversations that we're having so that value extends to the stakeholders, so the physician delivering care and doesn't just stop with administration and reporting. It's still, it's still tough, though. It is. It is with all that clicking that they have us do, with all that <laughs> clicking. Um, but I think if you can... So, so is there any way that we can use the data that we're collecting for other people to help us with quality improvement? For instance, one of the things that you had mentioned was something that they're looking for is the patient experience. And so, you know, that's something that's very important to me. Correct. That the patients have a, a positive experience from the minute they pick up the phone to make an appointment or go online to make an appointment to, to leaving. You know, it, so how can we utilize the data that we're effectively collecting for other people or creating for other people? Is there any way for us to use that to improve our own patient experience. That I think is the easiest one. Absolutely, absolutely. So part of what CMS or any, or commercial payers as well, they collect patient satisfaction data. Um, they They often come back with their own recommendations of areas of opportunity and areas that, that perhaps you can intervene on. But you could take that same opportunity to use that same data or collect data on your own, right? There's a ton of ways that we can survey patients, even while they're on site, doesn't have to be something super, super um, intensive. And collect that data and understand what do patients prioritize when it comes to to you delivering um, care to them? Because not all patients are created equal. So you need to better understand like what's top of mind? Is it timeliness? Is it ease of creating an, you know, scheduling an appointment? Is it how quickly they can see you? Is it your ability to solve their problem? What is their perceived problem? So it's all those questions. And then take a look at that and say, well, who are these patients? Are these healthier patients? Are these sicker patients? You know, include the demographic speaks. And now all of a sudden you have an analysis that you can use to say, have targeted messaging, right? Patient engagement and better understand what channels of communication or approach are better suited for the patients that you serve. By doing so, not only are you enhancing your own engagement with them, but also your own care teams and the ease and flow of how you manage day-to-day operations. Patient engagement for me is probably one of the most important pieces because it enables you to connect at deeper levels than just their care in order to to manage their well-being. 
But are you then creating more work in order to collect that information? Or are you doing that utilizing the data we're already collecting for the value-based payments? You're ready. You're leveraging that data. Okay. You're okay. leveraging that data. It's the same surveys that you can use uh, for providers who see patients, Medicare patients specifically under MIPS, that can that you can select specifically those measures so that you're very intentional too. Some programs do allow you the flexibility of selecting the measures that you want to work on. So you can intentionally select measures that are more uniquely positioned for you to influence and impact and also that connect with where you think the greatest need is in your practice. Okay. Have you seen any changes in the value-based payment models secondary to the coronavirus? Uh, There's been some changes, absolutely. So payers have paused some level of reporting for 2020. A lot of it will resume in 2021. I think what's more uh, meaningful to providers is that with the uptake of telehealth, NCQA did include uh, some codes that will allow you to leverage when reporting on quality some of the telehealth visits, many of the telehealth visits. There were 40 plus codes that were introduced, meaning you can get reimbursed potentially at a higher rate by virtue of reporting higher performance in 2021 by doing what you're already doing. Plus, it provides you with the flexibility of providing your patients with alternatives to care because patients are very still concerned around attending a clinic in person unless there's higher risk scenario that calls for it. So um, as I work with physicians, especially, you know, both primary care and specialists, the biggest concern is one, providing uh, multi-channel communication so that all your patients are able to engage with you regardless of what's going on, two, providing alternatives to care, depending on what, how you deliver care, obviously, and two, and three, really understanding the, the future dynamic and where we're going. So many of the value-based uh, payment models are aligning themselves with Medicare policies and regulations, which is a great thing because at least hopefully we don't have to follow too too many different rules um, moving forward. But absolutely, I think it allows, facilitates the opportunity for us to really think, a look, take a look at, you know, what's truly important to us um, as providers, as healthcare stakeholders, and take a look at how we can maximize on incentives and and activities that we can do into 2021. So we can't comment. This is this episode is going to come out after the election. So just so the listeners know, we're recording it before the election, so we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but you know, kind of irrespective of the election results, aside from telehealth, uh, what do you see happening in the future? In the future, I think whether is left or right as it relates to the elections, much of uh, payment models are are here to stay from my perspective based on what we see. So it shouldn't have much of an impact on on how we define value. There is immediate needs to save on costs as much as possible as we could see. There are still pockets of patients who we're still unable to really connect with because of health disparities, right? So problem pre-COVID, pre-election will continue to be problems post-election, post-COVID, if that's even a thing. So I think what I make, what I recommend is stay focused on these real world problems that still exist and leverage these contracts, these opportunities to really make an impact using the voice, using your voice, which you learned how we can do that earlier in the segment. 
you might not have an answer to this, but something that physicians like to discuss a lot is tort reform, because some of us order tests, drive up costs, really more out of fear of litigation than what we think is the in the actual best interest of the patients. And, and, and I'll give you an example in my specialty. If you have asymmetric hearing loss, mm-hmm. so one ear hears a bit better than the other, and you don't have an explanation for that, uh, like some previous surgery or... So what we look for is this benign tumor called a vestibular schwannoma. It, it occurs pretty infrequently, and it requires an MRI in order to diagnose. Now, we mm-hmm. tend to get a lot of MRIs, which are expensive, and we don't find that many of them. Yet, you know, I've certainly had cases where I was looking for it on one side and found it on the other. And, yeah. you know, so th- these types of things are going to drive your decision-making out of fear of missing, an, you know, missing one. But that's not value right? That's not, or that's not necessarily value. I think there's probably a number there. The actuaries would probably be able to tell us a number of how many MRIs you should get in order to find one in order for it to be, you know, of value. Um, But it's not the actuaries that are telling us, it's the lawyers that are really telling us. And so out of fear, we're ordering probably many more than we really need to. So is tort reform being discussed at all in the same breath as value-based payment models? Yeah. Absolutely. I think the best answer is follow the evidence, right? So do you feel when you're ordering these MRIs, are you following the evidence, what the evidence is showing? Well, the the American Academy of Otolaryngology, I think, has a statement about when, what is considered asymmetric, but that doesn't mean that a jury is going to agree with that. Correct. Right? So we can't, we're not beholden to the Academy's recommendation. Right. We are we're beholden to a jury that of non-medical experts. So my biggest advice to that is, is follow your, your clinical gut at all times, right? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the, the, the largest costs related to healthcare are probably not of, of this scenario that you just shared with me. There are bigger, potentially preventable costs generally, and similar to your case, resulting from things like hospitalizations or misuse of different systems and settings. That's where the bulk of the cost is, right? It's not when I see physicians trying to debate a decision of what's right for the patient versus not, right? So we don't want to take that away when it comes to the value piece. But as a system, if we all coordinate care in a way that keeps the patient where they're supposed to be setting-wise, right? ambulatory care, specialty care, hospital care, and in these cases, even home care via telehealth or some other format, now we are not only making things easier for the patient, we're probably keeping them safer than they would if they would have to navigate and wander our systems. That's where the money is at, right? So I would say stay focused on improving care coordination for all sorts of efficiencies across, uh, and it's less about those scenarios that you just described. I guess because 100 excess MRIs is not nearly as expensive as one patient with end-stage renal disease on dialysis. That's, that's correct. With unnecessary hospitalizations, I've seen patients time after time where just because they missed their dialysis on Tuesday are now a hot mess. Yeah. And with no uh, potential result of even making it back home in certain scenarios. So it's patient safety, patient care, unnecessary cost. 
much more rather focus on the bigger process gaps that we sometimes have in healthcare than are we making the right decision. That's what your your training is there for, your years of experience, there's decision support tools that may assist you with the process to have the right probing of when to even prescribe an antibiotic or an MRI, right? That's what those pathways are designed to do. But your focus should be much more on really ensuring that there's patient safety comes first. So it might seem to some of us like tort reform, it will actually save money, but ultimately that's not where we're hemorrhaging money, not from these. That's not where we're hemorrhaging. We're hemorrhaging and and hawing and depends who you see, you might get a different answer. It's these big systems problems. Big systems problems. And of course, the episode that you mentioned, we call those episodics, right? Episodes of care. There are there might be opportunities for you to look into the process so that are, are you asking the right questions that will not only cover you from a litigation perspective, but also you're still following the evidence, right? There's a sweet spot there too. Are, do you have the decision support process in place to make the right decision with the right coverage across both the clinical and the legal piece? The answer yeah. is yes. So we all want us to look at that. We want to look that, at that as part of our value-based contracting, but the system piece is even greater. Any parting words for our physician audience on how we can either something we should know about uh, value-based payment models that we didn't cover or anything else that you would like us to know about uh, what you what you teach at SmartRise Solutions? Sure. I would say it's always tricky for providers, for most of us, to really understand what's truly meaningful to us, right? And what can we bring to the table that carries that disproportionate value, right? So a, a few tokens of or suggestions on that part is One, making sure that you establish the culture, whether it's in your practice, your training, your care delivery, that really uses and uh, includes that voice, that piece that's important to you, because by virtue of doing that, you're already establishing better care, better patient experience, and you're probably making the right calls in terms of cost, right? Inherent to your, your own fulfillment. Two, Take a look at your process workflows. Those are things that are much more tangible uh, to providers in terms of when they ask, well, what's my role, Vanessa, in, you know, lowering cost of care or even lowering hospitalizations, right? Like that's such a big, big question. Start with your own process. Start with things at home, your common practices, and then get involved in in ways that uh, continue challenging you intellectually. You know, I, I actually... Never see um, more spark and joy in physician groups when there's like a, a problem we're all trying to solve at the same time together. So I really still see excitement and spark coming out of the unknown. So if in in value, in value-based payment models, there's a ton of those pockets of let's try to solve this together. So, so to bring in that spirit that brought you into the business to begin with, into healthcare to begin with, and really find your place in it, whether that is in data, Maybe you're the champion. Maybe you're the motivator. Maybe you're the one who will always challenge the position or the case. So find your role in finding value. And maybe hire a scribe to click those boxes so you don't have to. That is always a possibility, my friend. So as long as you see the value in documentation and why we're doing it right, to, to grow evidence of, of why it's so important to, to have these pathways, Again, seeing the value in the ordinary makes it extraordinary from my perspective. 
So if someone wants to learn more about you, wants to maybe hire SmartRise Solutions uh, for, for either personal coaching or for their organization, where can people learn more about you and where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me directly on my website, www.smartrisehealth.com. I'm happy to schedule some time, uh, get to know what problems you're trying to solve and what, what's meaningful to you, and then we'll connect the dots from there. Vanessa Guzman, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a joy. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.